0: We have a society based on elite capture, based on sharp hierarchies that make some people's opinions literally matter and do more in the world than others. And it would be an improvement of that social system for it to matter that lots of people don't have the politics they should have on this or that issue, right? For for that to be the stumbling block between us and justice would be an improvement on the present system. Let's build the systems where it's our neighbors that we have to convince of a just energy policy rather than the shareholders of ExxonMobil.
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support The Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the Book Club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
2: So good afternoon, good evening, good morning, depending on your time zone. Um, I'm Robin D.G. Kelly, and I'm here uh, with one of the brilliant, brilliant young scholars emerging right now, uh, Professor Olufemi Taiwo, who is, uh, assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. Uh, you may know, um, uh, his first book, Reconsidering Reparations, World Making in the Case of Climate Crisis. Uh, in many articles, he's written in various journals, both uh, popular publications as well as scholarly journals on topics ranging from policing, COVID, climate crisis, racial capitalism, race and class debates, theories of the state, public health, emotional labor, and on. Uh, and we are here to discuss his brand new book, just just came out with Haymarket, one of the great publishers of all time. Uh, it's entitled Elite Capture, how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else. So we're gonna talk about that and everything else. Um, Anyway, it's, just, it's great to be here with, with you, Femi. Um, I knew you were, I knew you from UCLA, getting your PhD. Although, like I was saying before, I take, I can't take credit for anything because, you, <laughs> you know, you're in another world, another field. But you were organizing with the undercommons on campus and was, you know, real sort of political and intellectual presence there. So it's just an honor to be with you uh, this afternoon and evening.
0: Thanks for hosting this. It's really great to get to talk through all these issues. I'm sure we'll get to talk through the history side of things as well yeah. as the philosophy. Yeah,
2: you no, know, I'm looking forward to it. So let's let's jump right in. I mean, um, the book just came out. I would clearly everyone needs to read it, um, and I want to give you a chance to talk about um, what you were what you plan to do with it, like what, what the book is about, your arguments. And I just want to really emphasize one thing here before we talk about that. Um, one, you're a philosopher. That means your arguments are crystal clear. Um, two, you're a philosopher, which means that um, you're a special philosopher in that you weigh in on various political contemporary crises, social, political, cultural uh, challenges our society faces at a time when so much of academic philosophy is not, is, I wouldn't say navel-gazing, but it's really not focused on, on the public, in the public discourse. So that makes you very special. So can you, you know, just lay out just both the argument you're making about elite capture and then the stakes? <laughs>
0: The basic thing that I'm trying to say about elite capture is elite capture is a system behavior, right? Elite capture is a way that our societies work. It's a particular way that they can function. And there are two main ways, there are two main things that make elite capture worse or better, depending on what's going on historically. The core concept of elite capture is a simple one. It's just um, what happens when the social system is more responsive, you know, when group interests, group political projects are more responsive to the people at the top than the top of various hierarchies than everybody else than the full group. And when you put it like that, you can say, well, you know, when would you not have elite capture, mm-hmm. right? Unless you had a really radically egalitarian society. And that's absolutely right. So, you know, I think it's better to think of elite capture the way we think of a thermometer, right? It can be more or less hot rather than, you know, an on and off switch. There's either elite right. capture or not. So, so when is elite capture going to be really hot? When is elite capture going to be really high? Um, It's going to be high when there's more equality, when the distance between elites and non-elites is bigger, and it's going to be high when the kinds of organizations or social practices that constrain elites are weak or non-existent. Um, So you can have huge wealth inequality. That's one way you could have lots of elite capture. You could have low union density, low organization in working class. That's one way. Elite capture can be worse and you can have a combination of that. And that's what we have happening right now. So it's system behavior. None of the things I just said are about, you know, the elites being good or bad people or, you know, conspiring or, you know, there's no conspiracy stuff here. That's not to say that those things don't happen. It's just to say that our analysis doesn't need to depend on that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly.
2: And that's that's essentially hegemony.
0: You know, yep, like yep. like you make it very
2: quite clear. In fact, what's what's really timely about the book is, um, you know, just to give people a sense of of the of what I see as the stakes is that you know it's responding to uh, this global what you call the global racial empire, right? Which sometimes has no clothes and is always putting on clothes, yep. and that's p- part of the capture. Sometimes it puts on the clothes of 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 those in opposition, and then redresses though, those clothes to make them look hip, cool. And next thing you know, you're basically um, supporting the sort of mythology of neoliberalism. But but one of the things you argue is that there's a two pronged strategy to kind of capture these oppositional movements that erupt. One you know when when elites perform what you call symbolic identity politics to pacify protesters without enacting material reforms uh and then the other one is when when the sort of ruling classes or- or elites really deploy elements of identity politics to rebrand as opposed to replace those existing institutions and to be clear, you also mention a third strategy which is brute force yeah. you know so in many ways, it's, it's like, um, it, it, it is an echo of, of, of Gramsci in that you, you can't rule by brute force alone, but brute force is always there. That is when cooptation fails, regular old repression will do as you put it, which I love that line. Um, can you talk about, you know, in writing this book and thinking about it, was it really in many ways a response, was it, was it inspired by response to the politics you saw was it something you've been thinking about for a long time and it kind of clicked? Um, what what drew you to this particular argument?
0: It's a combination of things. You know, one of the routes in was just thinking about, you know, on what we could think of as the left um, in the U.S. You know, the spaces I was organizing in when I was at UCLA. Um seeing the kinds of norms the way that people used identity and thought about identity in those spaces and you know a lot of it i agreed with you know i i consider myself on team identity politics i would consider myself an africanist like that's a very explicitly identity-based way of thinking about the world that's not something that i'm interested in giving up and it's not something that i think we should because i think there are insights there and we you know we need to kind of pay attention to what those insights are and what they actually ask of us. Right. And so on the one hand, there's an appreciation for and a continued commitment to identity politics. And on the other hand, you know, there's all the, these norms about, you know, passing the mic or, you know, all the things I call deference right. politics, right? Like mm-hmm. Where Where plan A is what we're going to do is we're going to think, we're going to figure out who it is that we defer to whose political analysis we take on board. Um, and it's going to be, you know, a person that's a kind of stand in for group oppression. Right. Right. And, you know, there was something, there was something that I wanted to, you know, there's something that I felt we needed to move past as far as that went, but all the critiques were coming from these different places. You had the right, who just opposed the whole project of of mm-hmm. justice, right? But 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 use you know whatever hypocrisies or whatever problems they can find to just you know make fun of us, right? There there's the centrists who oppose you know who maybe have some. Vague overlap in values, but oppose the kind of redistribution that would be required to live them out. And so they also criticize identity politics. And then you have, you know, what gets called the class reductionist left, also critical of identity politics. None of them are critical of it for the reasons that I was, um, but those are the criticisms that are circulating. So for me, it was like, well, can we? Can we say something about identity politics that gets us back on track without falling into one of those three kinds of lanes? And that was what I was trying to do in the book.
2: Well, you know, speaking of identity politics, um, and by the way, you know, I, I chuckled you know, thinking about um, the politics of deference politics, basically, which we're going to come back to um, toward the end. But I mean, I, I'm old. I'm an old person. Right. So, you know, like my day. um Sometimes if you do engage in deference politics that is you know you sort of defer to those who seem to have all the identities uh, and and thus the presumption of knowledge of all structures of oppression sometimes they're agents yep. <laughs> they work for yep. the FBI <laughs> I, I, you know it's a long <laughs> list <laughs> but that that's another story um, but but no no identity politics as you know the, thems are fighting words, you know, they're fighting words. So can you, you know, you are you very careful at the beginning of the book of defining what you mean by identity politics as distinct from the way in which that idea or, or the discourse has been captured. Can you talk about, you know, what is identity politics to you and where, where do you derive your definition from?
0: So for me, you know, like like a lot of people, I take my cues from the Combe River Collective who, you know, came up with this insight, this important insight through you know, reflection and through experience as veterans of organizing movements. Some of these were some of the folks in the collective were people who had been in various organizations, racial justice struggles, struggles against patriarchy. Um, A lot of them had been members of the National Black Feminist Organization. And this queer black feminist socialist collective came together and thought, you know, there's elements of overlap between the politics that we have and the politics we found in these movements and these organizational spaces. And there's You know, elements of non overlap. There's stuff that isn't taken seriously, or that maybe is taken seriously but isn't prioritized to the extent that we would prioritize it. And so they come out with this collective statement. They do, you know, some thinking and talking amongst themselves, and they generate this insight that if we have identity politics going, if we think of identity politics, there's a different way into doing politics we can start with the particularities of our situation right the particular ways that social structures of oppression and injustice interlock and shape our particular lives and from there we can decide on our own as as real self-determining people not as faceless members of your movement or someone else's movement but as people in our own right you know what are our political priorities what's our agenda going to be based on where we are in the world—that's the starting point. Where you go from there is another important political question, and starting from there is compatible to getting to a place where you're working with other people. And in fact, that's what a lot of the people in this collective went on to do. Right? It's—it's it's not you know we understand that you know we are affected by reproductive injustice in a particular way as Black women. Um, But we can fight for reproductive justice, not just for black women, but for reproductive justice in general. And that's a thing that a lot of people would have interest in. I would say all of us, right? Um, All of us should. And so, you know, I think that kind of intellectual and political insight is something that, you know, we all need to learn from. And learning from it doesn't mean this kind of anti-coalitional, you know we're only going to look out for a particular set group of people. Um, that's not built into the idea. It's not the only thing you can do with
2: it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You now I was really struck by that and by the argument because it, um, it brought back um, memories, <laughs> painful memories to a, to a certain degree, but not necessarily. So, you know, I was really thinking, reading your book and thinking about how, Uh, how you anticipated, or how a lot of questions you raised were anticipated 25 years ago. Mm. Um, So I guess you were probably six years old, right? You know, (laughs) when a lot of us were defending the deliberate distortion of identity politics, but from attacks from the left. Mm. So, you know, in my day, it was Todd Gitlin, Michael Tomaski, Richard Rorty, and they were also putting forth a kind of, uh, a critique of race reductionism, you know, by inventing race reductionism and then critiquing it. Right. But they, and the amazing thing is that you know Michael Tomasky in his book, um, actually quotes, uh, the Combahee River Collective as an example of bad identity politics. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Takes one line, and and I write about this in your mom's dysfunctional. One line and says, see, this is how, this is a narrowing of identity politics. When in fact, you know, he neglected to mention the fact that in the Kobahi River Collective, you know, they're calling for uh, emancipation for everyone around a socialist agenda that is anti-racist, that is against homophobia, that is anti-sexist, anti-patriarchal, against capitalism, uh, and criticizing mainstream feminism for not being inclusive enough. So it's like he he read it, but he made this decision. To kind of bracket that, and uh, and in fact, the epigraph to that chapter in Your Mama's Dysfunctional, I quote Audre Lorde, who says, you know, if we are to keep the enormity of the forces aligned against us from establishing a false hierarchy of oppression, we must school ourselves to recognize that any attack against blacks, any attack against women is an attack against all of us who recognize that our interests are not being served by the systems we support. Right. Each one of us here is a link in the connection between anti-poor legislation, gay shootings, the burning of synagogues, street harassment, attacks against women and resurgent violence against black people. This is in a nutshell. This is the this is like what you beautifully capture in your book, like that politics, Mm. that black radical feminist politics, which is a politics for all. And it's interesting because. That quote from Marjorie Lord comes from an essay she wrote called Learning from the 60s. So all that's prefaced to get to this question I have, which is, you know, you, you, you make connections between things that are not always connected, or at least not always connected today. Mm-hmm. And that is um, a kind of restoration of a radical identity, identity politics coming out of the Kumbai River Collective and anti-colonialism. In other words, this kind of global reach uh, where struggles for justice in the global South um, in some ways, you know, are kind of parallel. And that is exactly, you know, when when Archie Lord talked about learning from the 60s, that is the period in which anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, a certain kind of radical nationalism uh, was consistent with the politics that that uh, the radical politics of identity, you know, that emerge. And one, you could talk about like that's just an opening to talk about a lot of things. You could go into any direction you want, but just could just you know, just like lay lay some of that out for us.
0: So one of the things I've been thinking about most centrally in you know elite capture um, and even the book before that is the thing that you quote Lord is saying, I think really powerfully and really clearly, like we're all link in this chain of, you know, this chain of oppression, this chain of social control. And, you know, you might not go to synagogues, right? You not, you might not be, you know, you might not be gay yourself, but mm-hmm. if you think those are happening to somebody else, And somebody else in the kind of final isolable for me sense of somebody else, you're, you're wrong. And when people say something like that nowadays, when people talk about, you know, sometimes people talk about this under the heading of intersectionality, um, maybe in previous times, you know, interlocking was the kind of, um, was the terms that people used. Um, But I think. Nowadays, I get the impression that some people think you're making just a moral claim when you say that, you know, my well-being, the oppression that affects me affects you. And and to be clear, you know, I'm a moral philosopher. I'm the last person who's going to say, you know, there's no morality here. It's all just, you know, Adam's voided class struggle, right? That's not how I think about the world. And the morality is important. But Mm -hmm. I think... By focusing over much on the morality, people neglect that I'm also just giving you a, just a plain description in the social scientific sense of how the world actually works. And in the era of climate crisis, you know, if we're not going to realize this now, I don't know when we're going to. Because ultimately, all of this stuff interlocks because we're all on the same planet. We are all literally in the same world in the sense of political systems, economic systems. The capital that's gentrifying your neighborhood comes from all around the world. Whatever the borders are that people Mm -hmm. tell you are so important, capital does not respect them, has never needed to respect them. The Spanish, the Portuguese empires who were here the English empires who landed at Jamestown and brought over enslaved people were doing so as part of a push towards trade in the Indian Ocean with investment capital that came from England mm-hmm. and monitoring that through trade routes that went through the Caribbean. This has been a planetary struggle for the last few centuries, and that has always been known and Always been acknowledged in every generation by the people who have been warping the system around their own interests. The colonizers have never been confused about the scale of the political struggle that they're waging. Right. And the times when the people on the other side of the struggle for justice have been most successful has also been at that scale. The Haitian and French revolutions happened at the same time. That was not an accident. The Latin American independence struggles happened around that same time. That's not an accident. Right. Right. The wave of independence struggles in Asia and Africa after the Second World War happened at around the same time. It's not an accident. None of those things is because what was going on in Haiti was exactly the same thing as what was going on in Gran Colombia or because what was going on in India was the exact same thing as what was going on in Ghana, but they were connected. And if we don't realize that they're connected, the people who do are going to run circles around us. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. right. Speaking of connected, I mean, one of the big complaints um, coming from uh, some Africanist scholars as well as others is that it just feels like. And I'm just wondering what your opinion is on this, if you agree or or don't agree. That, um, given the the interconnectedness, given the long history of colonialism, given the, you know, the, I mean, the, the deeper connecting connections today, that there seem to be like struggles in Africa, struggles in, you know, in the Caribbean, North America, for example, seem not to be in conversation. In other words, it's kind of talking past one another. <laughs> the fact that in um, SARS, for example, which is very much a kind of uh, ground zero struggle against state violence, let alone struggles in Brazil around state violence, um, sometimes get short shrift. You know, of course, you you begin with this in in your book. So, do you think this is this is right? This is a a, a, a correct sort of um, uh, observation that there seems to be a kind of disconnect and that there's almost a kind of parochial, especially in North America, kind of parochial focus on the conditions of uh, African-Americans as a stand-in for blackness around the globe.
0: Yeah, I I definitely think we have a ways to go in terms of um, self-consciously fighting a global struggle. Um, You know, during, you know, A lot of times people talk about the campus protests that led to the creation of, you know, departments like black studies. Right. Um, And the the term Third World Liberation Front is Mm -hmm. often used because that was the name of one of the, you know, one of the kind of coalitions of organizations. But the the reason it was called that was because it was happening during a global push in what was then the third world. Right. 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 for for those who don't know, the U.S. and for simplicity's sake, capitalism-aligned countries were the first world, USSR and socialism-aligned countries were the second world, and everybody else, which is to say most people, <laughs> was the third world. Um, and people, even in the United States, who saw themselves as fighting for, for justice, particularly racial justice, saw that as having something intimately to do with this global anti-colonial struggle. And you know, it's there's only so much that we can always get by, you know, by way of an understanding of our situation, but I think that understanding probably was pivotal, you know, probably made a difference to how successful those campaigns were, and today, you know, I think we could all we could all use more of it, you know, especially those of us in the US, I'm sorry to say, right. Uh, But, you know, we have a way of thinking about the world, or better put, not thinking about the world, um, that is an impediment to everybody's freedom. You know, the thing I always think about um, growing up, I remember when war was declared, both on Iraq and Afghanistan. And I expect this, I expected this to be an earth-shattering, life-defining set of political circumstances. Um, You come to find out, I'm not sure which of my students even know that those happened. A country that can do that, a political culture that can do that, Needs need some work from the, from the point of view of awareness of other places, from the point of view of you know, accountability, um, and that's something we have to construct.
1: The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialist conference in North America returns this September 2nd through 5th in Chicago, and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history, and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures, and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organizing, Palestinian liberation, and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Dereka Purnell, Olufemi Otaiwo, Kim Kelly, el Elkurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discounted rate. Once again, that's socialismconference.org. Um,
2: no, it's another example of elite capture, mm-hmm. you know, where um, uh, the idea that there's a, an entire generation that has only known explicit war. Now, I always correct, you know, make the corrective that the United States has been in war Every day in the 20th century, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a fact. But there's something about the explicit wars that um, the ones that were both advertised and shut down and revised and shrouded, starting with the the invasion of Afghanistan, right? So it, it's amazing, like how how e- I shouldn't say it's easy, easy, but how you go from uh the largest demonstration in north in in the united states being the, the before the george floyd uh brianna taylor uh demonstrations before that but the largest demonstration before that was the an anti nuclear demonstration in, in central park mm. right in the 1980s so you go from a robust um disarmament movement anti war movement peace movement Uh, as a kind of way of life to a world where everywhere I turn around, it's like people play war games, you know? Um, And I'm not saying, I'm not blaming video games for this, but it's it's a kind of acceptance that uh, war is simply just the way of life as opposed to anti-war as a way of life. Uh, And that's, again, elite capture, you know, Um, the idea that uh, we get on airplanes and we make sure that military personnel go on first and that people applaud and these, this sort of thing, and I'm not blaming people who actually fight I mean it's a, you know that's terrible for them, mm-hmm. but it's the idea of, of basically upholding u s empire as simply a way of life to quote you know william appleman Williams from way back you know in that book so I'm wondering um in terms of the dangers of elite capture you know um and I'm going to ask you to sort of project forward, you know, uh, and we're going to talk also about what's next, but what what do you see as some of the, I mean, besides, of course, climate uh, change, what do you see as some of the like fundamental dangers uh, for humanity, uh, for life itself, of the ability of a ruling class to absorb opposition and make us actually uh, uh, actively support uh, the imperial aims of, of the United States and of capital
0: generally. It's one of those things that is at the same at at once extremely difficult to overstate and also extremely easy to overstate. Right? It's easy to overstate in the sense that, you know, it's easy to try to make it categorically different from the past. But as you just said, right, the U.S. has been at war every day of the 20th century, right? This kind of authoritarian claim to control is the rule, not the exception, um, particularly if you look at the U.S.'s racial politics and its colonial politics in this hemisphere right? The Western hemisphere. So, you know, I don't want to make it sound as though, you know, what's on the horizon is some unprecedented level of control by elites, Um, you know, and we're leaving genuine liberal democracy and going in the direction of some new thing. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, you know, things can get worse. And, you know, elite capture can get worse. And the way things are going, you know, I think it's going to look on a long scale what COVID looked like at a short scale. You know, right. For a while there at the beginning, even the elites were shook. Right? They're like, we don't know what this virus is or what to do about it. The US literally engaged in piracy. They stole PPE from other countries. You know. Um, uh, there was a whole there were all kinds of apocalyptic predictions from models at the beginning. And then the vaccines showed up and the vaccines turned out to be effective. Mm-hmm. And then things changed. It's not as though you know, the vaccines being effective is the end of the pandemic. There's all kinds of other things you have to do, like distribute the vaccines equitably. Right. At a minimum. Um, if 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 what you're trying to do is look out for the health of everybody. But as soon as these people felt safe, now you've got the White House correspondence dinner all indoors. <laughs> you know, wow. not you know. Presumably, everybody getting served in the seats is You know, vaccinated and can work from home and all the people, you know, working the event, you know, are in a much different kind of position as far as economic security and health security. Right. Um, And that's. there. That is the elite's plan. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not just that they don't have answers to the climate crisis or to the ecological crisis or to water security or to um, energy insecurity with the grids in California or Texas. They don't have questions. Right? As soon as they can be convinced that their individual needs will be secured, as delusional as that is, ultimately. Um, but as soon as they can convince themselves of that, however delusionally, you know, the appetite for the ruling class to actually solve social problems um, vanishes, and right. with upward redistribution of wealth, with you know, elite consolidation of control over technological platforms and the courts and other political institutions, the media, so on and so forth, you know, is more and more the case that a very small percentage of people are going to convince themselves that they can buy their way out of crisis and they won't be convinced otherwise until you know the rain and the storms and maybe the pitchforks convince them right right
2: exactly you know i want to go um before we get to the, um, to deference politics, which I think I want to spend a little bit of time with, I kind of want to, uh, turn to, um, you know, what you lay out as some solution lessons, solutions, but a way forward. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things just to, to, uh, to Mark, which I think is very important. Y- you really do, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but really subscribe to the idea of praxis. That is to say that praxis is not practice. It is actually movement, motion, trying in the process of doing, changing the world in as you change it. As opposed to, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, critique everything, lay out some kind of plan and then step by step. Use whatever kind of reform measures to do that, but you're talking about changing which which means that you don't always get it right. You're you're, right. you're struggling and changing, and with every change is a kind of dialectic. So I wanted to to mark that for the for people who haven't read the book, and it ask this question really, or um, you know, one of the your proposal basically is, you know, a kind of combination of the kind of grassroots coalitional politics along the line of the. Kumbahi River Collective, uh, alongside or rebraided as it, as it were, uh, with anti-colonial movements of the Global South, as sort of anti-neoliberal, anti-colonial, um, and that is specifically around the case for some reparative justice. And, and this is something you deal with in your uh, wonderful book on reparations. Um, and so, one question I have is that one one of those lines tend to be um, I don't want to generalize, but tend to be at the sort of the level of people on the ground, creating institutions, alternatives, resisting class or state power directly. Whereas the other one, in terms of the long history of what what, Vijay Prashad called the Third World Project and others, um, sometimes it takes the form of state-directed challenges against kind of global imperial order. And clearly the state directed um, is tricky when you have NSARS is against the Nigerian state, right? Yep. Um, what, do you, what is your thought about state directed sort of liberatory movements versus those who are that, that are that who are that are anti state? Um, what, what does this does the state in its current Sort of iteration have the capacity to to sort of um, participate to actually um, operationalize redistributive justice in the way that you're you're thinking about, or are we talking about something that that's required before that could happen? So, your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, this is something I've been wrestling with, um, and you know, I think your characterization of praxis is going to be particularly important for this question, right? Where, you know, at the end of the day, we're just going to have to try something because, um, and, and then, you know, take an honest assessment of the results and then figure out what we should try next. Um, but what I'm trying to accomplish by way of this framing is to shift the discussion about those things away from to the extent that we can away from the kind of solely moralized way of thinking through the issues and a more recognizably tactical way of thinking through the issues if you're in brazil and you have and you have the pt you have the workers party right and lula is a viable presidential candidate you know, the question of state directed versus non-state directed ways forward just has an entirely different political character than if you're in you know if you're in France where the choice is Le Pen or Macron, right? <laughs> right? Like um I I think the the tactical question of to what extent state resources can be Put, or you know, maybe better to say, bullied into doing things that are at least compatible with you know what we on the left would think of as good ways forward. Um, that's a that's like a that's a deeply um contingent question on the particular political realities, and it just doesn't advance our thinking towards answering that question from my point of view. You know these sort of high level theory questions about whether the concept of the state is a good or bad thing or whether national liberation is the right character for struggle you know i i just um I'm not anti principle as a way of framing political questions in general, but I'm close to that on the issue of the state mhm mm-hmm. yeah that that's a <laughs>
2: <laughs> that opens up a whole category. <laughs> we have to have another conversation about that because, you know, it's, I was thinking, uh, I'm glad you raised Brazil as an example because Brazil is such a great example on the one hand where you have the state apparatus under the workers' uh, party, under Lula, the first time created all these opportunities, you know, raised wages. I mean, there was a, a kind of a robust, so, somewhat robust welfare state, which also went in a neoliberal direction, you know, um, as well. And yet the same state uh, became the uh, the hammer for Bolsonaro's kind of fascism, you know, and this is the big, the big debate. Well, is it, is it necessary? Is the state a neutral uh, structure? Is this the, um, the inheritance of a colonial order or um, uh, a warfare state, uh, uh, the modern liberal state. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to think about it, uh, and so this is this is the debate going on now, which is why I think a lot of people are moving toward like an anarchist theory of the state, you know, whether or not the state itself is corrupt, and for the uh, for the third world. I like third world, by the way. You know, my students give me a hard time because they. They forget its origins, you know, and I'm glad you raised it the way you did. But um, but for the for the global south their world, um, you're talking about, uh, you know, especially in Africa, the inherit they've inherited the colonial state pretty much unchanged. And it had to sort of figure out how to reorganize it, revamp it for what, you know, and every time it's turned into something that's a, sort of a, a, a robust. Uh, uh, welfare state with the supports the social wage and democracy it, there's a, a standing military that <laughs> that again a legacy of colonialism that then says sorry can't do it you know and, and we don't know who they work for always right. um and and i'm not even i i just i'm throwing that out there i'm not even making you have to answer the question but uh, it's it's part of of the ether of our of our conversation. I don't know if you wanna to respond to any of that stuff and then we're gonna go on to something else, but.
0: I will just say, you know, one of the things that, one of the things to think about in this equation is, you know, not just the relationship between states, right, so, so you know, states in Africa or Asia or South America in the kind of global order thing where, the U S or the EU or Russia or China, you know, throw around their weight or even the Gulf States. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's also the kind of supranational level, like whatever's going on at the WTO, whatever's going on at the IMF, you know, there's parts of, there's parts of the global left that are still um, laser focused on Mm -hmm. that level and have great analyses of, what to do at that level and what's possible. Now, one of the things I like in particular is the idea of debt cancellation, right? The, the use of debt and credit as forms of political control, um, mm-hmm. particularly by the IMF and World Bank, um, has is a thing people have had lots to say about over the last few decades. And if you can, you know, Maybe maybe I'll put it this way. You know, let's find out how ideologically captured these states really are. If they if they if they don't have to spend quite as much money servicing debt and thus they have more money to spend on social spending, what would they do? That's a real question I have. I doubt the answer is the same in Angola as it is in Ecuador. Right. Right. Um, But. I suspect it's something different than what the, you know, private creditors would have them do. And, you know, regardless of what we think about the state, whether we think it's good or bad, whether we think it's the potential vehicle for the dictatorship or the proletariat or whether we think it's, you know, irreducibly the enemy right whether we want it or not we should be denying it to fascists i hope we can Mm, all get (laughs) i hope we can all get on 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 that you know because whatever whatever neoliberals want to do with it the out and out fascists want to do something worse um so i i hope we can at least get that far oh yeah
2: no i I'm, i'm with you on that and that's where the whole slogan of um, abolish the police, abolish the military, abolish the prison, abolish war. I mean, these these are the, the mechanisms through which the state does its its violence, and um, when captured, uh, is a very powerful force. Anyway, okay, so th- so let's let's move on to because we're going to I want to have time for some of the questions from the audience, but I want to get to you know toward the end. It's you know at least you give us. Hope, <laughs> you know? and, and I and I'm not a big believer in hope in the in the sense of the Obama sense. I mean, mm-hmm. that sucks. But when I say hope, meaning that it's a reminder that people make history. Um, it's not we're not made we're, we're we're products of it, but we make it. And so I love the fact that you end basically with Andaya, you know, the great uh, uh, Guyanese. She just passed away, Guyanese revolutionary you know, working uh, people's alliance uh, and you know with the point is to change the world which he draws from from Marx in the end uh, drawing on the thought of people like Ruth uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others uh, real practitioners of and theorists of praxis um, and I'm wondering in in how you end uh, the text you know what what do you think? Um, what are the next? What, what do you think is the most effective uh, move forward, if our uh, if our task, in many ways, is to change the world by changing it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what I mean by that is that you know if so many people are in some ways uh, captured by this culture. Um, how much of the work is about convincing, is the uncaptured people, you know, or well, how much of the work is not necessarily in, in sort of huge groups, but really to, to do the work, uh, to do the sort of abolition feminist work on the ground, uh, irrespective of capacity and numbers, you know, and, and, and this is, it's an important question for me because, you know, I'm a historian and I'm, I've always made the point that many of the movements that we uh, identify as mass movements were never really that mass. You know, the the, the numbers of people, even the civil rights movement, you know, I mean, you could have 100,000 people or 200,000 people show up in Washington, D.C., but you can count the number of people in Mississippi working town to town in two two or three hands, right? So, um, and and they're, they're very effective. So I'm wondering, next steps, like how do you see uh, where we're going? And, okay, not to add something else, I forgot the most important thing. How do you see deference politics as undermining that capacity mm. to, ch- to make change?
0: So one of the things that... I definitely, you know, I'm definitely with you in thinking that, you know, it's w- whatever change is going to be, it's not going to come by convincing, you know, by by getting pollsters to reflect a new dominant ideology and then, you know, the rest shakes out from there, right? Already, you know, more than 70% of people want Roe v. Wade to stay in place, but more than 50% of the Supreme Court who have the votes that matter on that particular issue um, have indicated that they might be having different thoughts. And, you know, the one thing that the right actually learned from us, you know, by by studying Marxists is, you know, what a long term institutional struggle looks like, a long term cultural and institutional struggle. Um, And it doesn't involve or it doesn't require you know getting majorities and they're using that for evil um, but you know it's also something that can be used for good but i do think it's going to involve more people and resources that we have now and this is the other sense in which i kind of break from the idea of you know well if everybody gets diversity equity and inclusion training then thoughts and minds will change and then policies will change you know i we have a society based on elite capture based on sharp hierarchies that make some people's opinions literally matter and do more in the world than others you know the supreme court nine justices is just a oddly explicit and formal version of that broader reality and it would be an improvement of that social system for it to matter that lots of people have bigoted views or <laughs> lots of people don't have the politics they should have on this or that issue, right? For, for that to be the stumbling block between us and justice would be an improvement on the present system. And so I think, you know, let's build the systems where it's our neighbors that we have to convince of a just energy policy rather than the shareholders of ExxonMobil, right? Energy democracy is, you know, community control over energy provision and storage would be a system where that was true. Um, that's not just something that can be true for energy, it could be true in general. You know, the Brazilian Workers' Party started um, participatory budgeting. People have talked about that in Seattle. And other places it's already happening on a small scale in New York. Right? these are things that could happen on a much larger scale. This could be how, in general, cities, counties um, decide what to do with public funds. That's not to say that everything would magically go well because, like you said, right people you know people have been socialized, people have been educated by this imperfect system, um, but it would be better than the decision-making system we have now, which is where a bunch of shareholders and a bunch of banks get together with some political elites and decide what the infrastructure is going to be for everybody else, you know what the policies are going to be for everybody else. So I think you know, we, one of the things that these small committed minorities of people can be doing is trying to make on a formal level, trying to shift decision-making power to you know, community level. Right. There'd be work to do from there. You know, not all communities have the politics that we wish they had, um, but it would be much different work from the work of camping outside Brett Kavanaugh's house and right. yelling until he supports abortion. Exactly.
2: I mean, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we think about a politics of solidarity uh, and the importance of being transnational. And yet, um, the the current attack on reproductive rights is one that, um, of course, is transnational. But it's also um, we live in this this thing called a federal republic in which there's a kind of unevenness in terms of what's you know now now it's basically with with the abrogation of of any federal protection of reproductive rights it basically means that state by state it will have laws. So what what does that mean in terms of building solidarity across state lines? It's, you know, it's like 1954 or 1864 all over again. Um, how do you, you know, what does that entail, especially when the irony is that some of the places where you actually have Participatory budgeting and, and, mm. and actual um, grassroots practices of democracy, like in Jackson, Mississippi and stuff like that, um, are, are in states where those those um, uh, those laws are going to go are, into, are in effect now, denying the right to abortion. How do we build this cross state solidarity? And that's just within the United States. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, here's where I sound most You know, this is me and my most curmudgeonly and Marxist, (laughs) but I'm just like, you know, it it might, it it might just be unions. Honestly, Like, Mm. I'm not, you know, I I don't even, I don't mean that dogmatically. If people can do this with debtors unions or tenants unions or uh, church groups, then that I would be ecstatic to hear that. But historically speaking, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that the ability to mobilize grassroots political energy across all kinds of borders, state borders, um, borders between countries, has been one that has historically um, been effectively organized by organized workers.
2: Mm hmm.
0: And it's not just because of the nature of their organizations that they can take locals across state lines and thus move resources and build solidarity across state lines and country borders, though that is obviously important. But it's also because just by the nature of what they are, they speak to the powers that be in terms that they understand. If you don't do what we want, you get less of what you want. Or maybe none of what you want, and at the end of the day, they're much more afraid of that than they are of most other forms of organizing. Um, And that's why you know organized workers were pivotal in the destruction of Jim Crow. Uh, Joe Trotter's book is uh, a really important history of this. Um, That's why transnationally organizing unions were part and parcel of the anti-apartheid movement and this is another time where that kind of focus is going to be important. Right, workers on arrival, Joe Trotter. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah. Okay, so we got this great question, uh, great answer. Um, So we have some questions in the chat. I would just want to share them. So this is from uh, Camila. It is, um, is there something in the way identity politics or any other critical radical politics is framed it makes it easier to be captured by elites, by captured, to be vulnerable to elite capture.
0: So it's, it's certainly possible in general that um, it's, it's possible to frame an idea or an intervention or an insight in a way that that is vague and thus can be co-opted, right, Um, more easily co-opted. But one of the things that I think is important to understanding politics, particularly in the United States, is that responding to a message or to a text doesn't require reading. <laughs> or, or engaging with it oh, too. That is too. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's it's like you know the point Robin made earlier, right? Where one line of the Columbia River Collective Statement was taken out of context, right? And so you know whatever c- framing, careful framing, happened in the rest of the document, and you can read it for yourself. It's an mm-hmm. extremely precise, clear, clear and careful document, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, if someone isn't bound by norms of accountability and honesty, then it's it's difficult to, at least by means of intellectual scaffolding, stop people from doing that sort of thing. And right now that is powerfully on display in U.S. politics. Florida it has banned 40 percent of math textbooks on the charges of inclusion of critical race theory. Now, even the top intellectual, you know, explainers of why critical race theory is so evil struggle to give so much as a critical definition, you know, so much as a clear and coherent definition of what critical race theory even is, much less, you know, instructions on how to identify it in a math textbook or any other kind of textbook. Um, But. Nevertheless, they were able to do the bans, right? Because at the end of the day, power is what is being sought, and people just use ideas in the search of power and in the search of maintaining powers, particularly on the right, where, you know, not in every case, but in in a lot of sections of the right, you know, the, the there, there aren't norms about genuinely meaning what you say, and right. yeah, and so yeah, I think that's the long and the short of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's so funny because my my daughter uh, Ellie Kelly, who teaches at Yale, she um she's for years been teaching critical reading practices in a very very I mean when she was teaching at, at Columbia as a grad student, she would give students um uh some of the upper administration. Uh, directives, you know, the the, <laughs> the the propaganda, you know, statements from, from upper administrations that we're going to critically read this. And there is an art to reading, which I think has been lost, you know, and, and, and I don't mean, because you're right, it's this one thing about cherry picking, that happens all the time. But there is a, uh, th- there is some loss in terms of what critical reading is. Uh, and this actually, is a nice way. I, I'm gonna skip over one question, but I'm gonna come back to it. But I want to jump to this other question. But I promise you, um, I'm gonna come back to the middle question. But the, this question, which is tied to this, and it is, and you offer a critique of deference politics as distorting both who defers and who is deferred to. Can you talk about that and its political implications? Because deference politics is also a, a way of that we read the body and we read. We read a lot into things that mm-hmm. may not be there.
0: Yeah. So, so just, uh, just a quick reminder. So the basic idea is there's the act of deference, which is saying, you know, um, on this occasion or in this conversation or today, I'm going to take this person in front of me. I'm going to take their analysis on this issue. Right. Um that, May well be the thing to do on a particular occasion, but deference politics is saying, like, that's my default. That's how I'm oriented fundamentally to politics. I'm an ally to X, Y, or Z, or, you know, I take this person's kind of political direction or this kind of person's political direction. And that as an orientation, as a default way of doing politics, I think... You know, let me start with the people who are deferred to, right? So the people who are held up as examples of you know the right kind of perspective for this or that kind of marginalized group. You know, I I think that this is this disentangles us from the kinds of practices of accountability that are really necessary. To, you know, keep ourselves hinged in the political world, right? If you, you know, if people are, if you're used to people accepting the things you say because you've said it, you know, you lose the ability to distinguish, you know, what your idiosyncrasies are versus what the needs of the movement or the moment actually require, Um, and sometimes the reason that people advocate for doing this is, um, is, you know, this is where trauma politics comes in. These Mm -hmm. people are sometimes, you know, this person has survived this kind of horrific thing. And so they know something that I don't. And, you know, even besides that, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to press them in the wrong kind of way because they've been through this traumatic thing. And, the base thought there is true and important right what people have experienced is very is a very important part of how you should relate to them Mm -hmm. right but i think the but people who have been through trauma need genuine you know accountable reciprocal human connection if anything you know more That's, again, part of what moors you to yourself, to a community. You know, I am, I am, you know, not just this thing that happened to me. I'm a person. I have these genuine relationships. They're, you know, genuine adult reciprocal relationships. Um, I can trust the things that people are saying to me because they're saying them to me because they genuinely believe them and not just because they're trying to handle me, right? Those things are actually, I think, important. Their, their importance is only heightened by the fact that someone might have gone through something traumatic. Um, and so, you know, the urge to defer comes from, you know, it comes from an admirable place, but I don't think it ultimately helps in the end. Mm-hmm. Right. And then just quickly on the people who are doing the deferring, um, I don't think, you know, there isn't too much to say beyond the fact that, again, it's not the job of, you know, your representative person of color um, or your representative survivor of trauma to do the very difficult intellectual and political work of figuring out what we should do about a world that is so traumatic. That is not a thing that any one person is equipped to do by themselves. And, you know, by holding people up as the standard bearers, you know, what we're also doing is kind of withdrawing our share of the work, the combined collective work that it takes to respond to a world that produces trauma. And, you know, for that reason, you know, and many others, but that's a central reason for me. I don't think it's good. To defer, um, so it's bad to be deferred to. It's bad to defer. Constructive politics. Right, I, I'm laughing because of course
2: this is the story of being an academic mm. <laughs> in a department where you're the only one, you're the only disabled person, you're the only queer person, you're the only black person. And trust me, you know I, I don't know. For for 35 years, I've been having this 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 little lecture, like. You all want to be anti racist? Don't put that on me. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's our job <laughs> together. Oh, my God. Oh, God. All this trauma I'm dealing with right now. <laughs> <to get> <laughs> okay. So, um, Xavier Miles. Okay. I'm going to come back to this question. So, the question is how do you position your work in dialogues in abolition and abolition in Black radical imagination? Although I would put emphasis on abolition mm-hmm. if, in terms of that question. Like, how do you position your work in relationship to abolition politics?
0: Yeah, thanks for that question. So, you know, I see this as kind of being – I see this as fitting into the umbrella or at least being parallel. And this really comes out in the last chapter where I talk about – Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is a, you know, is a longstanding veteran of abolitionist movement and thought and praxis. Um, And, you know, one of the points that she and others make about abolition is the kind of whole of society perspective to abolition. Part of the reason why carceral politics seems so sensible to us is because we zoom in on the acts of harm and maybe the people involved on either side of the act of harm. And we say, what's wrong with them? Right. And how do we fix that? And it's no. It's no particular surprise that when you just think of the question of, like, what do we do to this perpetrator Um, or even. From the other side, you know, the victims' rights movement was one of the was one of the major impetuses for mm-hmm. the mass incarceration, right? If if that's the framework for it, then carceral politics, you know, looks like it makes more sense than it actually does. Mm-hmm. But if we zoom out from that and we think, you know, what kind of society would produce this harm and and maybe even more importantly, what kind of society, what kind of changes can we make to society where, you know, no one would ever think to do this, or at least fewer people would think to act in this way. Right. right. Then we get something like the ethos that Gilmore has said, you know, the quote, like when life is precious, life is precious.
2: Right. Right.
0: And again, that's a thing that sometimes people say and You know, someone like Gilmore will say that and people will hear it as a kind of moral exhortation, right? Like, if we just care and love for one another, then we won't need prisons. And again, you know, like a moral philosopher, I don't think that it doesn't matter if we care or love for one another. Um, But I think she's saying something else alongside that that's very important. Like, what if we made it a design principle? What if we made it a basis for actually, materially, how the world is constructed? Then how much progress would we make against, you know, getting rid of the kind of aspects of our society that encourage and sustain violence and and putting in their place things that encourage and sustain peace and material security and interpersonal security? Right. And. That's, that's I think, what constructive politics is trying to say, like, just, we just need to do that. We can't critique our way to doing that. Um, protests will have to be involved, but it's not the only thing, right? We need to actually create the things that, you know, transformative justice folks, restorative justice folks have been working towards, right? How do we you know, build communities of care and solidarity um, that both address harm when it does happen, but maybe just as importantly, create the kind of society that eliminates the conditions for certain kinds of harm. Right. Exactly.
2: And that's why she said, you know, abolition is not an absence, but a presence. You yep. know, presence of justice and creating those institutions. Um, okay. Uh, Jesse Daniels has a question. Uh, I wonder if you have thoughts about the global rise of the far right and how that fits in your analysis. And I would tell Jesse Daniels, definitely buy the book because that, you know, it's it's in there. So could you could you like talk about that?
0: Yeah. The rise of the global far right is one of the. Is one of the most important kind of instigators for this analysis, in particular, the constructive side of it, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I think we've been in a moment for the past few decades where the powers that be weren't genuinely interested in the project of extending freedom or protecting democracy, but they were interested in looking like they were interested in that product in that project. And, you know, that's not a lot. It doesn't close prisons or prevent prisons from being constructed, but it does, you know, impose some, some weak constraints on authoritarian politics. And now we're coming up against a time where the frustration of people, based on the inability and, in fact, disinterest of neoliberal structures in addressing the actual, you know, kind of concrete material problems that people have, um, jobs, energy, water, rent, Mm -hmm. right, total disinterest. And, you know, that is an exploitable situation from the point of view of the far right, right? And it has been exploited. You know, in the US, they'll say, oh, it's all these, you know, immigrants, these Central Americans. In South Africa, you know, some people are saying things that are quite similar to that. You know, if we're gonna keep it a buck. Um, in Europe, you know, people have been saying that for years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's somebody else's fault. Um and by the way, it's not the fault of the people who have the levers of political power or the levers of economic <laughs> right. power, right? But it's it's the fault of, you know, these other people who, you know, might want to build public housing on our on our golf courses. Um and that is a recipe for that's a recipe for fascism. Right. Straight up. And right. so, you know the ruling class again asleep at the wheel not only do they not have answers they don't have questions right is the way that i've been putting it recently and so you know they're not going to address these material crises that are serving as recruiting tools for the far right Mm -hmm. and part of the other thing that's going on when I say, you know, we need community-level decision making, we need community control over land and housing and energy, um, participatory budgeting, all these kinds of democratic things, is that w- somebody else needs to weigh in on these things. If if policymakers are going to read a million IPCC reports and use them. You know, as paperweights, when all of the when all of the reports are saying, you know, we have we have 20 seconds. No, we have five seconds
1: right. to,
0: you know, chuck emissions off a cliff and get rid of emissions. Someone else needs to be the decision makers at some point. Right. It can't be them because they have shown determinedly through behavior that they are uninterested in solving this. And so, you know, this is a major impetus for constructive politics. Not only do we have to build things to get justice in general, but there's a time frame issue. We have to build things now to even have the possibility of getting justice later. Right.
2: And that's not liberal politics. Right. You know, and, and I think um to go back to just to build on the question that was posed about the far right, I mean, I think it's really and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Um you know, you, you made a deliberate decision to look at examples of elite capture that often are within a framework or either a liberal framework or even when you begin uh, the chapter about what is elite uh, capture by talking about E. Franklin Frazier and mm-hmm. the way that Buy Black, um, which still persists as like the answer to like the, this will free us all. If we know we, we have like a trillion dollars worth of revenue if we just kind of pool all that money together, then you know the the heavens are open. The climate catastrophe would end. Everyone would have a Lexus, and life would be good. I mean, you know. But you 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 point out that so much of it's coming from a liberal uh, position, and what does that mean though in terms of how we think about coalitional politics, especially around these crises? Because, you know, one of the things you begin with is talking about how easy it is for there for people to jump on a kind of abolitionist bandwagon, for example. You know, to um, uh, to pass legislation to sort of say, look, you know, this is abolitionist legis- legislation, but it's not really. Uh, it's you know, reformist reform. It's it's saying, well, you know, you got to work within the system. You know, reformist reform kind of thing. Um, how do you? What, what are the limits of and I know this is this has to be always dealt with um, situationally, but what are the limits of coalitional politics uh, in terms of trying to push back a liberal agenda that pretends to be uh, or at least front facing as progressive and transformative
0: yeah, this is in a lot of ways among the central questions of our era right so so we just got finished talking about the far right and you know for whatever else we might say about liberal democracy is countless articles coming out saying you know democracy is on the back foot it's backsliding etc um but at least from a kind of pr standpoint you know it does have this one little narrow bit of advantage for the neoliberal center because they at least get to come out and say, well, we're not, you know, we're not trying to repeal Roe v. Wade. Like that's, that's a wild, you should donate to the democratic party. It's, you know, that's, <laughs> right, that's, right. That's, that's crazy. We wouldn't do that. Um, you know, would we help you? No, that's another question, but you know, but, but we wouldn't, do this specific thing that the further right people are going to do, and so you know that comparison, particularly in a two party system which we have in the U.S. Um, but but that comparison is going to make it difficult to get. Um, it's helpful that you brought in that distinction there between reformist reforms and non reformist reforms, right? Um, if if what's on the other side is fascism, then you know it's it it makes reformist reforms look Better politically than they actually are, uh-huh. and so that's also again part of why um, I think part of what is behind the impetus for you know constructive politics, um, as far as I'm concerned. Right, so maybe there's a culture war battle around you know. Critical race theory, let's say. So, right says, "boo, critical race theory," um, and the center left says, "critical." It's a, it's not a critical race theory. What's critical race theory? Um, and meanwhile, um, they're defunding the public education systems, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I think part of the role that constructive politics could play, or that I'm hoping it could play is kind of changing the frame of the discussion. It's like, not only is critical race theory fine and good, actually, um, but here's a vision of public education that would be fair for everybody, that would be, you know, that would protect students, that would give teachers good working conditions, which are also the students' learning conditions, or get everybody who works in a school good working conditions. You know, so, you know, instead of, so they say critical race theory is bad, and we say Green New Deal for public schools. Mm-hmm. Same thing with healthcare, right? They say we don't like healthcare, we love private insurance, and we say Medicare for all, um, or or whatever it is. But you know, moving forward on the basis of you know not an opposition to what the right is doing, though. Obviously we need to oppose what the right is doing, but we move forward with a positive vision of what we want. Grassroots planning, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts mm-hmm. it, you know, or you know the imagination, as Ndai puts it, right? The black radical imagination, but we move forward with a vision, with an alternative, and an alternative that people want to live in. Mm-hmm. Whatever critiques we have of the New Deal, and there's plenty to critique about it you know, it was a vision of what the world should be like. And it was communicated by what was in it for people, rather than what they were avoiding on the other side of things, or just what they were avoiding on the other side of things. And I think that's, you know, where constructive politics could go. Uh Uh-huh.
2: So I know time's running out, but we have another question, which is actually a good segue from your last point about the New Deal and constructive politics. And that is, Alyssa has a question. Appreciate the selection of unions as an emancipatory vehicle. Yet Unions are historically elite capture manifested. How do you see labor as an emancipatory organizing principle? Why unions?
0: So, so let me start with the why unions and work my way back. So, so um, just to rehash something I said earlier, you know, why unions is because, again, unions speak to capital in a language it understands you don't do what we want we can do strikes or sick outs or work slowdowns you know whatever the tactic of the day is But, but we can hit you where it hurts not your reputation but something you actually care about right um or care more about i guess i should say um so that's that's why unions there aren't you know not every organization has the ability to exert costs that the ruling class actually recognize, recognizes in response to. Um, right. So that's why unions. Um, but, you know, again. Look, unions are made out of people. Right? People have imperfections. People have gaps in their politics. People have bigotries. You know, I'm the last person who would get up here and pretend that everything any union has ever done has been great. You know, unions for a long time had problematic racial and gender exclusions. Um, these are things that, you know, labor historians know backwards and forwards. Okay. But, you know, unions are also historically what we make of them. and among the things we have made of them in the past have been very difficult to stop engines for justice um so I referred to Joe Trotter's book Workers on Arrival earlier um that's the story of how um unions um particularly unions that um, involve African Americans, helped fight and dismantle Jim Crow. Unions helped fight and dismantle um The apartheid unions um, now, as we speak, are employing um, what some have been calling a bargaining for the common good perspective, where workers explicitly work with people outside of the union to develop demands and fight for those demands that go beyond wages and benefits. Um, for, for the people in the union that fight for those things, which every union should, but also fight for policies that are good for entire communities. It's a whole ethos that is one way of doing labor unionism. Chicago Teachers Union, West Virginia unions have done this to protect their students and their students' communities and their teachers' communities. Um, labor notes called, um, an SEIU strike in Minnesota, the first climate strike they were negotiating over, um, climate issues and the, um, kinds of cleaning materials that they were being offered as, uh, as janitors. Right. And so, you know, labor, the labor union will be what we make of it. Um, elite capture is a flexible concept right it's not as though there can't be hierarchies within the union and there and there haven't been you know wherever there's people there can be hierarchies but the question is can we you know through our imperfect associations through our imperfect organizations challenge injustice on a society scale and we have few better answers maybe no better answers historically
2: than unions right well, I know our time is up. Let me just say, give me 30 seconds to add something because I think you, you raised some, you mentioned some really good examples of unions. I think about, you know, Joe Burns has his book called Class Struggle Unionism, which really looks at, at the distinction between those social based class, you know, identify class conscious, I should say, although that's a tricky term unions versus a whole history which i think Alissa is getting at the history mm-hmm. of of the the expulsions of radical unions during the cold war in 1949 the, the the number of give backs um that union leadership has been engaged in and against the kind of wildcat strikes and, and grassroots struggles to democratize unions. so it's, as far as lee capture i mean she's right and i think you know it it, it, it beautifully um uh, underscores what you're arguing about, elite capture, that there's a way in which, you know, even within uh, the, the big unions, like, you know, United Auto Workers and stuff like that, there's a kind of elite capture that goes on as well. Mm-hmm. So I think the combination of what you're uh, proposing, um, uh, you know, is just beautiful. You know when we look at it from the from the bottom up, you know so i would I would agree with that. Um, okay, so th- this has been great. it's always great to talk to you, Femi. um and I look forward to more conversations. I want to encourage everyone to get this book. um I also want to encourage like whoa, before we go, um you you name a lot a lot of names of amazing people and I want to encourage everyone to read. Your, go to your footnotes and go back and read the text, especially yep. read anything and everything that Barbara Smith has written. Um, because in many ways, she's a pioneer on these questions. Because even after the Combahee River Collective, she continues to write and publish texts that I think could be foundational for the kind of movements that you're talking about. So, um, so that. So with that, um, thank you. Farewell, everyone. And I appreciate you, Femi. Up, up.
0: Appreciate you. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Haymarket. Thanks, everybody. Okay.
1: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.